0: Beloved, wherever you find a flock of sheep, you can be sure that there is a wolf prowling around seeking to devour and destroy. And this goes back to the beginning. There is a spiritual wolf. We are a flock of sheep, a local flock of sheep, part of the universal flock of sheep, which is the body of Christ, the church of God. And the battle lines were drawn in the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when the serpent came and tempted Eve, and Adam ate of the fruit, and the world fell into sin. The battle lines were drawn. God described them when he was pronouncing his judgment upon the serpent. In Genesis 3, verse 15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now between your seed and her seed, he will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. Beloved, since then, every child of God, you and I here today, face an enemy that is hell-bent on your destruction. He's a terribly powerful enemy who is cunning and guile, full of guile and wily and crafty, deceitful and deceiving. But we know the end of the story. We know who wins. We know the enemy has been defeated, although not yet destroyed. And even as we sang those beautiful words in that wonderful modern hymn from the Gettys in Christ Alone, the last stanza that we sang said, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand. The beautiful theology that we sang uh, flows directly even from the passage that we find ourselves in here this morning. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. David Fettes, the pastor and author, said this about Satan. He said, Satan is a tyrant and he wants to conquer everything he can, Satan wants to dominate you and hold you under the power of sin. He wants you to die in your sin and end up in hell with him. He wants people around you to perish as well. He wants them to ignore Jesus, believe false religions, and end up in hell. If you expect peace in your life on the side of eternity, if you expect a life without struggle or conflict, Satan will completely control you. Don't be a spiritual appeasers. Stand against Satan Pastor Fettis says, fight him, be a warrior, join Jesus' army, and don't expect an easy, peaceful life. It is hard to stand against Satan's attacks. It's hard to go into enemy-occupied territory and bring the liberty of Christ to those ruled by Satan. There will be no peace in our time. There will be spiritual warfare until Jesus comes again. Beloved, we are in a holy war. We wage, we combat, we battle in a spiritual war zone. Beloved, listen as I read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Last week, we covered 10 and most of 11. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the end of verse 11, just the word devil, and then verse 12. But I'm going to read 10 through 13 to set the stage for us. This is the Word of God, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Beloved, that is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Please attend to it as Such And beloved, what we do when we look at this, when we read this, last week when we were looking at verse 10 and 11, we saw the empowerment that we need, the equipment we wear, and the enemy we face. The empowerment, we understand that we need to be empowered By the strength of God in the same way that our salvation comes from outside of us, comes from God. So also the strength that is required for the spiritual war in which we are fighting comes from outside of us, comes from God. And the equipment we wear is the armor of God. Paul will go to great detail in describing that to us in verses 14 through 17, and then the enemy we face. And this morning, as we wrap up verse 11 and look at verse 12, that is where our focus is, the enemy that we face. And we want to understand, you need to understand, beloved, who you are, what you have, and whom you face. Now, it's interesting, when you think of sermons, there are most sermons, many sermons are the way in which you would think them to be sermons. You have three points in a poem, and And Okay, it's a sermon. Some sermons, and again these are expositional sermons that flow from the text, are sometimes more kind of like a theological seminary lecture. This particular sermon this morning in this passage God has for us is a military briefing session. Uh, We could think of it in terms of before deployment or more accurately understanding we have already been deployed. So this is a military briefing session from the Lord to us. And God wants us to understand our enemy's resources and skills. We need to assess his ordinance, firepower and experience, his leadership and strategies and methods that he's likely to use. So, we'll ask the first question, who is this enemy? And what we see in verse 12 is the army of Satan. In verse 13, it's the armor of God. But in verse 12, it is the army of Satan. And in particular, we see the devil there at the end of verse 11, the domain, and the demons. So, who is this enemy? It is the devil. We're introduced to him, at least in this passage, in verse 11. Now, maybe you've heard the saying, it's a trite saying, it's got some wisdom to it, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Now, we don't want Satan to be close, but we do want to understand who he is and we want to understand his schemes, his methods, his tactics. And there are errors on both sides that we must guard against. On the one side, we don't want to be preoccupied with Satan and the forces of darkness. We don't want to be running around like unreasoning animals, according to Peter and Jude, trying to bind Satan and bind demons or finding a demon and Satan behind every Bush. We don't want to be preoccupied. We don't want to be in a theological system that's almost like we're under the sovereignty of Satan rather than the sovereignty of God. At the same time, we don't want to ignore and we certainly don't want to deny the existence of Satan and his minions. And Charles Spurgeon said, there are certain theologians nowadays who don't believe in the existence of Satan. And it's singularly insane when children don't believe in the existence of their own father. Well, beloved, again, we don't want Satan close, but we need to understand him. That's why the Apostle Paul, for example, when he was writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, he said, "...in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." So, That is why we need to understand the enemy that we face. Again, in verse 11, Paul said, Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So, we're going to address the question, who is the devil? Who is this enemy? Now, we know when we look at Scripture, when we look at Genesis, when we look at the book of Daniel, when we look at Revelation, when we look at it in its entirety, that God created spirit beings Sometime at the very beginning of creation, before he created man and woman on the sixth day, God created spirit beings, and they were all holy and perfect when they were created. Uh, They are what we call angels, the spirit beings who never fell, but then there are also spirit beings who did fall. We call them demons. Three of these spirit beings are named for us in Scripture. Gabriel, Michael, and one named Lucifer in Jude 9 Michael is called an archangel. One of the things that we understand when we look at angels when we look at the holy angels is there appears to be some kind of ranking and order and categories of them. So again Michael was an archangel. We'll read of the cherubim and the seraphim. It's very likely that Gabriel and Lucifer before he fell and became Satan are also archangels. In The particular context of Ezekiel, when you read Ezekiel, you read of Lucifer, who before his fall was walking around in the Garden of Eden. And he's portrayed with this beautiful kind of musical instrumentation. Even when he walked, there was beautiful melody that came from him. Now, when we look at these three named spirit beings, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer, Gabriel, we know basically has the role and the responsibility of being the messenger. In Daniel chapter 8 through 10, also in Revelation or even in the beginning of Luke, Gabriel is the messenger of God who brings the message of the Lord. Michael, in Daniel chapter 10 and in Revelation chapter 12, appears to be the warrior. So Gabriel's the messenger. Michael's the warrior, and from what we understand from Lucifer, he appears to have been the worshiper, the worship leader in a sense of the angels. But in Isaiah 14, if you want to turn there for a moment, what we see is a description of the sin that went into his heart that led to his fall. And by the way, when uh, we read these passages, when we read Ezekiel 28, for example. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking to the king of Tyre. But then, while Ezekiel is speaking to the human king of Tyre, God is speaking to Lucifer, who became Satan, past and behind the king of Tyre. Here, in Isaiah 14, in verse 4, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the king of Babylon. And look at what he says in verse 12. And this is where, in verses 4 through 11, Isaiah is primarily, again, speaking, prophesying to the king of Babylon. But then in verse 12, while Isaiah is still speaking to that king, God begins to speak to Lucifer back past him. He says, verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. And if you have a King James Version, it says how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. And then in verses 13 and 14, you will see five times where Satan, where Lucifer said, I will, I will, I will. Where the sin of pride came into his heart, where he wasn't satisfied with God as his God. Verse 13, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Beloved, that is the great sin that Satan committed that led to his fall that turned him from Lucifer into Satan. Now, we can understand who the enemy is. We can understand dimensions even about his schemes and his methods from his different names. In, in Ephesians 6, in verse 11, he's called the devil, the devil. The devil is used 35 times in the Bible. In the Greek New Testament, it's diabolos, which literally means the slanderer. And that is because the enemy, the slander, the devil, slanders God. He slanders Jesus Christ, the Son. He slanders the Holy Spirit. He slanders the Word of God. He slanders the child of God. He defames everything related to God. So he is the devil. He's Satan as well. Satan is used as a title of this enemy, this being, 52 times in Scripture. And it comes from a Hebrew word which literally means the adversary. And it tells us that he is the one who opposes God. He's the enemy. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of the holy angels. He's the enemy of the child of God. He is your enemy. The devil, Satan, is your enemy. Or in Revelation 12, verse 9, in that one verse, there are four names or descriptions of Satan. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, and this is describing that time at the very beginning of creation after God created the spirit beings when Satan fell. Revelation twelve nine: the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Elsewhere, In the same chapter, it says that the dragon, and I think it uses the title dragon for Satan eight times just in Revelation 12. And elsewhere in the chapter, it says the dragon's tail swept across and took out one-third of the stars who fell down with him. So apparently, one-third of the spirit beings God created fell with Satan and became what we call demons. So he's the devil, he's Satan, he is the dragon. And the dragon, that title itself shows his power and his destructiveness. It describes him as a terrifying creature who's out to destroy. It pictures him, especially in Revelation 12 and in Daniel 10, as the general of the hosts of hell, commanding the army of demons. In uh, Revelation 12, verse 7, two verses before, it says, war arose in heaven, Michael, Michael the warrior of God, and his angels fighting against the dragon. So he is... The general of the hosts of hell commanding the army of demons in Daniel in Revelation 12 and right here in Ephesians chapter 6. And beloved, the same devil who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. The same enemy who tempted Christ 40 days or after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness wants to tempt you and drag you to hell with him. To paraphrase the wisdom of Kyle Reese, the enemy's out there. He can't be bargained with. He can't be reasoned with. He doesn't feel pity or remorse. And he'll absolutely never stop ever until you're dead. So he's the devil, he's Satan, he's the dragon. He's the serpent. We read that title again in Revelation 12, 9 and in Genesis chapter 3. And the characteristic of the serpent, even as God brings it through Moses in Genesis 3, 1, is the serpent is crafty, he's subtle, he's sneaky, he's deceitful and deceiving. In Genesis 3, 1, Moses opens up, that chapter describing the temptation and the fall of man with these words, "The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field." Or the apostle Paul, again to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11:3, says, "The serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness." Now, I'll pause here for a second. I was recently reminded of my fine young son, Jaden. Uh, reminded me that our next door neighbors, and it was actually three neighbors back from the current occupants, they used to celebrate Halloween by hanging a giant demon above the front archway of the house. I mean, this was probably, what, like eight, ten feet? I mean, it was a big demon. You know, tis the season, I guess. They didn't do anything for Christmas. But but it was a demon, it was a horned demon, it had a red and black face, the typical accoutrements that you'd expect of Satan and demons and such. And the question is, where did this idea of a red-suited, pitchfork-bearing, horned devil come from? And it finds its roots actually in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, there were believers and there were Christians and there were professing Christians and they believed in the existence of Satan, rightly so. They understood they needed to resist the devil. But they weren't really tuned well in terms of how to resist the devil with the word of God. They did rightly understand that it was pride. It was his pride, even as captured in Isaiah 14, that was his primary governing sin. So they thought, well, if we paint some kind of caricature of him as some kind of court gesture, this cloven-hoofed court gesture in a red suit that will mock him and he'll flee from us because of his sin of pride. Beloved, Satan in contrast, in scripture, does not appear as a fool. He is a beguiling counterfeiter. He speaks with eloquence. The prince of darkness wears a cloak of light. When Satan comes, he doesn't come with horns bearing a pitchfork and a red and black face. What does he appear as? He comes disguised as an angel of light because he's deceptive. So he is the devil, Satan, the dragon, the serpent, he's also the evil one. He's the personification of evil, Christ, in his high priestly prayer. As Christ the man, as Jesus Christ the man was praying to God the Father, he said, I don't ask you that you take them, the believers, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Again, he's evil personified. He is the deepest possible point of evil. He's the tempter In Matthew 4. He's the accuser in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Zechariah 3, verse 1, Zechariah writes that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Or another verse from that epic chapter of Revelation 12 actually. Verse 10, the verse right after verse 9 we read before. He is the accuser of our brethren. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So he is the tempter. He is the accuser. He's your tempter. He's your accuser. Lastly, he is the father of lies. In John 8, verse 44, Christ said he was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. Beloved, the enemy, Satan, the devil, the serpent, the dragon, the tempter, the accuser, the father of lies, he sits on many church councils. He sits in many university boardrooms, He has offices in many corporate ivory towers. He's an accomplished theologian, philosopher, and tactician, and he's an expert murderer, liar, and thief. That is the enemy that you war against, that I war against. James R. Graham III, he was a pastor in the mid and early part of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Divine Unfolding of God's Plan of Redemption. What Pastor Graham did in that was he described and he kind of broke out two primary schemes, two primary methods, two primary strategies that you can see in the Old Testament of the devil, namely murder and mixture. And you see that in the Old Testament, that he tried, and it's even captured also in Revelation, that he tries to kill and exterminate Israel. He try, tries to exterminate the line of the promise for Messiah that God had given all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can think of the decrees of Pharaoh and the decree of Herod as part of his tactics of murder. But there's also the second one, which is mixture, the blending together of light and darkness, of truth and error. And you can think of the Baal worship and the high places in the Old Testament. And we can ask the question, again, wanting to understand the wiles of the enemy, to understand where he may attack what's most likely is, which between mixture and murder, between murder and mixture, which seems to be the more dominant one? You can think of wasps. If you want to kill a wasp, what will do a better job of attracting and destroying and killing a wasp? A jar that's half water and half vinegar or a jar that's half water and honey? Every time the jar that's half water and half honey will attract the wasp and kill them. And beloved, in the same way in the history of both Israel in the Old Testament and the church shows that mixture triumphs over murder as his principal scheme to destroy the plan of God. Now. When we think of the army of Satan, the army of Satan, which is kind of under the umbrella of the armor of God here, let me say something that I hope and I would trust doesn't need to be said, but absolutely must be said. Don't take the juxtaposition of the army of Satan and the armor of God in any way, shape, or form as somehow saying this is a co-equality type of thing. God and Satan, that's not any kind of dualism. That's not some kind of yin and yang. That's not a balancing side of two sides of the force. Satan is powerful, way more powerful beyond what we can imagine, but he is infinitely short of being omnipotent. Satan is extremely intelligent, way more intelligent beyond what you and I can imagine, but he is infinitely short of being omniscient. These spiritual forces of war that we wage against are ever-present, but Satan and his demons are not omnipresent. God and God alone is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And Martin Luther was spot on when he said the devil is God's devil. And what he meant by that was not that God in any way, shape, or form that puts a spot, stain, wrinkle, or dent in his perfect holiness, but God is sovereign. And God allowed Lucifer to fall for a good and just and perfect reason for His ultimately for his own glory and for the redemption of you and of me as well. So that's the devil. But as we continue on, we'll see that Paul describes, God describes to you and me the domain of this warfare. And this is, we understand, should understand, not a physical battle. This is not a political battle. This is a spiritual battle. Paul says in verse 12 at the beginning, for our struggle, our struggle. We'll pause there for a second. Now, Paul almost seems to be switching metaphors here, because the word translated as struggle literally means wrestle. Both Homer and Plato use this Greek word translated in the New American Standard to describe wrestling and wrestling matches. Uh, If you have an English Standard Version, if you have an ESV, it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In The Greek translation of the Old Testament, one of my favorite passages in Genesis 32, 35, which proves that Brazilian jiu-jitsu and submission wrestling is in the Bible. You may remember the story. I say that mostly tongue-in-cheek. But you remember that Jacob was wrestling with a man, and the man was none other than God himself. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity in the form of a man. And Jacob wrestled this man all night long. And in Genesis 32, verse 25, It says, when he, the man, saw that he had not prevailed against him, Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And the passage continues and tells us that Jacob held on to him until the man would bless him. And that was where he got his name, one who strives and wrestles and struggles with God, and just on a side note to explain my whimsical note before, I mean, they fought all night long, and even with a dislocated hip, he was able to hold on to him and not let him go till he blessed him. That's Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but in any event. Beloved, the point here is this. This is not a switch of metaphors. It does talk about war, talks about wrestling, but basically what he's describing is that the spiritual war in which we are engaged is a violent hand-to-hand combat. This is close, intense fight. This is not a cold war being fought from a distance. You can think of modern warfare, think of modern soldiers. Do you think Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and Marine Delta Force, do you think they have any knowledge of hand-to-hand combat? No, they have their primary weapons. When they run out of ordnance for the primary weapon, they go to their secondary weapon. When they run out of ordnance for that, the knife comes out and it's hand-to-hand combat. That's the picture that Paul is describing here. But he continues, for our struggle, our we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not flesh and blood. It's not the weak, mortal, vulnerable nature of man. Our warfare, our intense, violent hand-to-hand combat and wrestling is against spiritual forces. And beloved, this is, I mentioned this briefly last week. I'll mention it again. This is an absolute fundamental distinction between, for example, New Testament Christian language of warfare and the Islamic jihad. The struggle of Islam is to make every flesh and blood bow the knee to Islam and Muhammad, whether by gun, knife, bomb, or beheading. Their struggle is, by definition, against flesh and blood. That is not the struggle that we have. It's not a physical struggle. It's not a political struggle. How about Western Christianity? We can think of Islam as an example. How about Western Christendom? And if there's anything 21st century evangelical Christianity misses, I think, it might be this. It's thinking our struggle is against flesh and blood. It seems we have a method, a prefabbed human answer to almost every problem we face. We have a program, plan, potion, and pill for every sin and every problem for everything. Uh, Another observation back here in Ephesians 6, verse 12, he says, for our struggle. And all the verbs all the way through verses 10 through 13 are plural. And I was thinking about this actually as I was preparing for this and studying this. I woke up yesterday morning and I had a screaming toothache. And it just was bugging me. I thought okay I must be fighting something off. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm an adult so I brush and floss. So I don't get you know, cavities anymore. But when I get a you know, the rare occasion I get a toothache I think I'm fighting something off. It's usually from some kind of uh, infection in the sinus cavity increases the pressure in your cranium and, you know, all those kinds of things. But uh, I had that. It was in the morning, not, no good. I, I told Rebecca. I told uh, uh, Zachary. I had my children praying for me. I talked to Rebecca. I was on my bicycle ride in the afternoon listening to sermons. Rebecca called me she said, how are you feeling, Dad? I said, oh, I'm feeling great. Better, you know, thank you so much for your prayers. It came back again last night. I was drinking cold ice water and uh, having a rest in my mouth around the toothache. And I thought, man, I'm you know, this is going to be hard. And I thanked the Lord this morning. I told Zachary when he asked, when I saw him when I first came in, that I slept better last night than I normally do. But the point here is this. When one part of the body is attacked, it radiates outwards. And beloved, the point here is this. You have individual responsibility to put on the armor of God, to wear the armor of God 24-7, to stand firm and hold fast to the territory and the ground that Christ has already won. You have individual responsibility to do that, but you are not in this alone. It is our struggle, and when one member of the body is attacked, it radiates, and the entire body is Attacked. These are the words of encouragement from God to you and to me. And even in that context, the enemy of God, the evil one, hates the idea of anything related to God, especially when we think here in Ephesians. Remember, what Paul has brought out with beautiful new progressive revelation is the one reconciled new humanity of where God has broken down even the God-ordained old covenant dividing barrier between Jew and Gentile that has been removed in Christ so Jew and Gentile rich and poor black and white young and old educated and uneducated master and slave child and parent husband and wife one reconciled every ethnicity reconciled into one body of Christ and the enemy hates that And so, part of the strategies is to do anything and everything to introduce division. He's at work at that even now in a powerfully sweeping global division. Also, in the context of the domain, at the end of verse 12, it says, In the heavenly places. And, you may remember that the letter Paul's letter to the Ephesians is where he tarries in the heavenly places in the heavenlies or in the heavenly places appears six times in this short letter in the preceding instances that we saw it appear it was referring in the positive context of God the Father bringing the sun up to the heavenly places to be seated at his right hand here in chapter six he's using it to describe as the abode the domain of the spiritual forces of darkness the idea is that the bible certainly teaches that satan dominates satan and his army dominate our globe and the atmosphere and his power base is above the earth and it is below the highest heavens that's why in chapter 2 verse 2 Paul there introduced us to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. Beloved, the point is, this is a cosmic struggle taking place in the heavenly places and is also manifested in moments of time and decisions of life. So we are reading of the devil. We're reading of his domain and we read of the demons themselves. Beloved, the devil's not a solitary figure. He has agents and agencies. We do understand that every sin is an inside job. Ultimately, we own up and have responsibility for our sins. But there are outside influences, agencies and agents, forces of darkness seeking to destabilize. And, beloved, there is even now from 1 Thessalonians, and even now as we witness in our time a profound and widespread irrationality. There's a diluting influence sweeping across the world even now. It has been sweeping across since Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and even before, and it certainly is now. But as we continue here in verse 12, we see Paul say, It is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Now, one of the amazing things when we desire to be a good student of the word is there are little words that we might just skip over, the word for, F-O-R, or the word against. But if you look at the end of verse 11 and then in 12, six times you will see that word against. Once at the end of. Uh, verse 11 and then five times here in verse 12 we are commanded to stand firm against the schemes of the devil at the beginning of verse 12 we're told that we are not warring against we're not wrestling against flesh and blood and then we have a sequence of three what appear to be categories or ranks of demons rulers powers and world forces of this darkness And then the sixth appearance is kind of a summary statement against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the point here for these next three, for the rulers, powers, and world forces of this darkness, in the same way that there's some kind of category of ranking of angels, there appears to be some kind of category and ranking of demons. We don't want to go beyond what Scripture says, but the sequence of against seems to indicate that these rulers, powers, and world forces is perhaps kind of an increasing rank of these demonic beings. He says, but against the rulers, against the powers, which, by the way, that that couplet right there, that pair there, that's the very same pairing that we saw all the way back in chapter 1 when Paul, at the beginning of this wonderful letter, was describing the victory of Christ and how God the Father took the resurrected Jesus Christ and ascended him up to heaven and seated him as right hand. Ephesians 1, verse 20, he says, He raised him, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority. And that's the same word as rulers and powers. For whatever reason, New American Standard translates that Greek word as authority in chapter 1 and powers here. The point here, beloved, is from the highest, we know from chapter 1, from the highest to the lowest, All are subject to Christ. There's no power that can withstand him. There's no might that can match him. There's no antagonist that can equal him. And that is the galvanizing words of encouragement and charge from our commander, God, from our commander, Christ, to you and to me. So there's back here in verse 12, chapter 6, there are the rulers, there are the powers, and then against the world forces of this darkness, there's one Greek word translated as world forces. And this is the only appearance of that Greek word in all of Scripture. And in fact, this is the first appearance of that word in the extant Greek literature. In all the Greek literature that we're aware of, this is the first appearance of this word, cosmokratoros. Now, having said that, you've heard of bureaucrats, you've heard of aristocrats, you've heard of autocrats, you've heard of technocrats. In fact, I was reading an article this week, independent of this, and I saw the word technocrat. This is a cosmocrat. This is a global potentate, a global despot, a global dictator. This is a powerful being. These are powerful beings in the army of Satan. And We've seen this kind of description even back in the Old Testament. Uh, We don't have time to go there fully, but I'll read a few verses for you. Gabriel, the messenger, comes to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. And then what we read is we read what Gabriel was telling Daniel in chapter 8, chapter 9, into chapter 10, that apparently Gabriel was on his ministry before the Lord, and there was an evil demon that opposed him. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, Gabriel tells Daniel that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And then in verse 21, again, Daniel chapter 10, he says, There is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, What does that look like? I don't know. We don't know. All we know is that God in his sovereign, perfect word revealed that to Daniel of the spiritual warfare taking between Gabriel, the messenger, who was thwarted by an evil demon until Michael, the warrior, came and fought on his behalf. So, beloved, that's a backdrop to the kind of language of this debriefing session that God gives you and me here in Ephesians chapter Six. And these are the world forces of this darkness. darkness, the kingdom of Satan, sin, rebellion, ignorance, blindness, falsehood, hatred. Darkness is where disease flourishes. It's the realm and power of sin. And how sad it is that today there are so many professing Christians and churches that seem to think the world will be attracted to Christ, if we give them a softer, softer, prettier, more benign darkness. Beloved, that's not what God lays out in his word. Demons hate the light and shrink from it. They hate the light of the word of God. I was having fellowship with someone in between the services. Oh, it was actually uh, David Lupinetti. And talking about a previous experience, you know, maybe with you know, demons and if if you're in something like that, what do you do? You don't try to bind the demons. You certainly don't try to bind Satan. You don't try to cast them out. You just preach the gospel. If you run into somebody that's having issues, whether they're demonized or not, who knows? It doesn't matter. We give them the gospel. We bring the light of the word of God to bear. And when the spotlight of the word of God shines its light on a dark heart, we pray that God would put life where there was no life before and plant that seed of imperishable truth, the imperishable seed in the heart. Well, th- finally, uh, verse 12 at the end, he wraps it up with his sixth and final against. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is the sixth and final summary against. And it's a summary of the army of Satan in its primary domain. Beloved, God allows Satan to develop a world system that is utterly hostile against God and his children. The forces of darkness are already defeated, but they are not yet destroyed. And that is why you must put on the armor of God. And in both verse 10 and verse 13, when he says, put on the army of, the armor of God, it's an urgent command. It's not a continual command. Not the idea, well, when you get up in the morning, put on the armor of God. Put it on and leave it on. Sleep in it. Work in it. Keep it on at all times. We must live in this sin-cursed world with the armor of God. We must operate in it, survive and witness and worship and war in it. Beloved, turn to 1 Samuel 17 for our concluding illustration. You'll remember the story. There was the mighty giant Goliath that was taunting the nation of Israel, Saul was the king. And Saul, we read from earlier portions of Samuel, he was taller than the rest of Israel. He was head and shoulders above, taller than the rest of Israel. So if there is anyone from the nation of Israel who should have fought this giant that was taunting the armies of the living God, it should have been Saul by virtue of, of his height and more importantly by virtue of his status as king. But there was a ruddy teenager named David that asked the question in verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would taunt the armies of the living God? And David said, I will go out and face this giant. And Saul had the bright idea that he would give David his armor. Look at verse 38, 1 Samuel 17. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed them with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And then The story went on, David didn't need five stones. The first stone, that first smooth stone that he removed from the brick, he put into the pouch of the sling and because God was with him, it flew and it buried into the forehead of the giant Goliath, even in the little gap in his armor. But beloved, the point here is this. Goliath was not killed because David put a stone in a sling. Goliath was killed because David put on the armor of God. He refused the man-made armor, and he put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And in Ephesians 6, the one offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Beloved, when you put on the whole armor of God, you will be victorious. You will stand firm. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the newness of life that we enjoy in Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that our salvation is guaranteed, that it is sealed with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God within us, and God in our midst as we gather together. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that we have individual responsibility to do everything you command of us and demand of us in your Word. And we praise you and thank you, Lord God, that while we fight individual battles of this in our personal quiet times and in our personal lives and in the subtle decisions we make in moments of time and decision instance of life, we are not in this alone. Most importantly, you are with us and our beloved brothers and sisters, our fellow soldiers have our arms linked together in this great holy war. And it is for your glory glory. And for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. And all your children again say, Amen.